This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Millions of students have not gone to school in person for more than a year. As of February, 31% of all students were learning remotely. Another 26% were attending their school in person only a few days a week. And just 43% were attending school full time. Is this drastic loss of learning justified? Is the risk of COVID at school so serious that teachers and students should be separated from one another, learning only from a screen? The American Enterprise Institute has just issued a report entitled, Is it Safe to Reopen Schools? An extensive review of research. It asks and answers these questions, or at least sheds light on these questions in amazing detail. The author of this report, John Bailey, is a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and I have him with me today on the Education Exchange. Thank you, John, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be with you. Well, John, let me compliment you on your outstanding report. It's really a terrific report on the risks of COVID and the dangers of not going to school. So let me ask you a, a question that I don't want ifs, ands, or buts as an answer. Like I just got from the, uh, the, uh, the head of the NEA, the National Education Association. I just want to ask you this question. Is it safe to reopen the schools? Well, I think... Um... Based on the research that we were summarizing in our report, uh, yes, it is safe to reopen schools. I think the question in, is more about how do you safely reopen schools? And that, that is where the body of research that's been amassed over the last year has sort of really given us uh, and pointed us towards the path on how to safely reopen schools. And the reason we have that path is because we have schools that are reopened all around the world. Uh, reopened in Europe, they've reopened uh, here in the United States, and they've done so safely. They've done so with very few cases with teachers and with students. And so uh, it is possible to bring students back in for in-person learning and do that in a way that's safe and responsible. Okay, let me uh, probe into that. But, you know, I just want to emphasize one thing in your report. Between March and October of 2020, less than one child in a million died of COVID. And of course, any death is one too many, but by comparison, 15 kids out of a million died in a transport accident. Nine out of a million died of suicide and five out of a million died of homicide. Well, we don't close schools because of automobile accidents or the possibility of suicide or even murders. So why did we ever close schools in the first place? Isn't in retrospect, the dump, that's the dumbest thing we ever did? <laughs> um, it's a great question. Uh, and I was firmly, I was on your podcast uh, this time last year uh, in squarely in the camp that uh, schools should close. And that part of the reason is because pandemic playbooks uh, going as far back as to when I was on uh, President Bush's pandemic preparedness planning team in 2005, when you have a novel virus, particularly a respiratory virus, you close schools for two reasons. One, because kids tend to transmit respiratory viruses much more efficiently uh, uh, than adults do. And also, kids tend to be the most susceptible to, to severe disease uh, and even death. And so most pandemic playbooks had said you close schools early. Now, it made sense to do that when we didn't know not a lot about the virus. But 
over the last year, we, we've gotten to know a bunch about this virus and that it doesn't act like a normal respiratory illness. That to your point, children tend to be the least symptomatic, tend to have the least disease severity, tend to have the least amount of hospitalizations and fatalities. Um, and there's even some open questions about whether or not they transmit the virus as efficiently uh, as adults do. And so it, it was right to close schools early. It's been absolutely wrong to keep schools closed, given the accumulating body of research that we know about the virus itself, and also about the various types of uh, mitigation measures that can be uh, put in place in order to keep teachers and kids safe back in the classroom. Well, John, this is an amazing report. You, you've compiled a lot of research evidence into one document. Of course, you didn't do all this research yourself. You, you gathered together what was known out there. Uh, how, how big a task was it? Did you have an army helping you with this? <laughs> no, it was not an army. Um, I'll be honest, that what, what the, the idea for this started, uh, I do a, a nightly COVID email update that goes out to some funders and some governors and I just noticed that we were covering every new study that came out. We would just sort of do a quick summary of it and we would, we would put it in the email. And what frustrated me is that there wasn't any place that was, that was summarizing the body of research. It's always um, uh, so risky to bet any one decision on a single study because every, every study has its own limitations and has its own strengths. You want you want to get the collective picture that the body of research says. And for whatever reason, there just wasn't um, that sort of collection at the federal level or with anyone else. So we thought what we would do is just go through each of the, uh, each of the, the research studies, summarize it, and really sort of put it out there for governors and for uh, state school chiefs and for superintendents so that they had the research in front of them that they could wrestle with and can wrestle with what the takeaways were including some of the studies that are inconclusive and, and even contradictory. But generally speaking, when you're looking at a body of research, especially 130 studies, it does sort of point towards a collective path. And the thing that struck us the most looking at this was again, schools have reopened safely and they've done it uh, without um, very elaborate mitigation measures. It, it's been through wearing masks, keeping some distance apart, frequent hand washing, uh, occasionally increasing ventilation and also with uh, asymptomatic COVID testing. But all these measures had sort of been suggested by the CDC almost a year ago. And, uh, and more recently, when the CDC updated its guidance, it didn't really change the guidance all that much. It just doubled down on the measures that we've seen have proven so successful all around the world. Yeah, but are those measures actually, do we have a lot of evidence that those measures are necessary. Do we have any evidence that COVID spread in schools when kids did not wear masks, did not social distance, did not do this testing, um, or any other? Do we have any evidence that when you don't do this, disaster strikes? I haven't seen it, and I didn't see it in your report. No, we had a couple, there are a couple studies and the, the studies that often you will hear the unions sort of point to, um, to say like, look, like uh, if you bring kids together, yes, they do create an outbreak. They point to an instance with a Georgia summer camp, the CDC study from there. 
there's a lot of conversation around Israel. When Israel reopened their high schools, they saw a surge of cases, both with high school students and as well as in the broader community. But what those, those two studies actually prove is that some of these mitigation measures are exceedingly important, that in both cases, students weren't wearing masks. And in the case of Israel, they were going through a heat wave. And so what they did is they turned on the air conditioner. They were recycling the air as opposed to pumping in new fresh air. Um, in the case of the Georgia summer camp, not only were the kids wearing, not wearing masks, but they were singing, they were loud, they were indoors, they were in close proximity to one another. And so it, it helps show that, again, when you don't have those protective measures in place, yes, it is possible for kids to transmit the virus. Um, right, right, and these are high school kids too. So they aren't little children. These are where yeah. we have the, the most convincing evidence that uh, young children uh, don't spread. With high school students, they look a little bit more like, like adults, although they're certainly not as susceptible. That's correct. As over the age of 65. That's correct. Very, uh, the correct. further point is, is that even if they're spreading the disease, is anybody getting sick? Is anybody going to the hospital? You know, what is the seriousness of the risk even when children are spreading the infection? Well, I think there's sort of two ways to look at that question. There's what's the risk to the students and then also what's the risk to the teachers? Meaning students may spread the virus to one another. They're largely asymptomatic and may not even know that they've been infected. But teachers could be potentially sort of infected. And um, again, there, like, I, I think what you're seeing is you just made this really important uh, distinction, which shows up again and again in the research that kids under the age of 10 seem to be far less susceptible to severe disease uh, than high school students. And they seem far less susceptible even to transmit the virus to some degree. That's not totally settled, that's mostly settled. Um, and so it, it, it does sort of paint this picture that uh, there are bigger risks for kids being out of school, and there we tried to document some of that as well in our report, meaning um, it, it, it seems now, one year into this, kids have the least amount to gain from closed schools and the most to lose. Uh, and the way they're losing is with uh, loss academic uh, progress, which translates into future uh, earning loss. Uh, it is um, measured in terms of mental health challenges, which we're only now beginning to get a, a clearer picture of. And also the, the incredible challenge we've created for parents, particularly working moms, that uh, there's this incredible study we included that looked at whether or not uh, schools were in-person or uh, online. And in cases where schools were online, moms tended to be out of the workforce. They had, they had left their jobs because they needed to be at home their kids. And with the San Francisco Federal Reserve estimates, that is about 1.7 to 2 million uh, working moms. And again, these are huge costs that we've asked moms and kids to bear for very little public health benefit uh, from having schools closed and very little protective benefit for the kids themselves. Well, somebody said the other day that this is the biggest transfer of wealth in our lifetime from the poor to the rich worldwide. Given the loss of uh, income, given the concentration of income loss among people who actually have to go into a physical environment to do their work, and uh, you know, given the, uh, the closures of schools and their impact, especially on, on, on low-income families and uh, minority families, this is the great this transfer of wealth from the poor to the rich in our lifetime. 
Do you think that statement is true? I think it's I think it's true. I think it captures an essence of something which, you know, again, a couple months ago, what economists were debating is what is the shape of the economic recovery? Is it going to be a V shape? Is it going to be a W, meaning we're going to dip down into another recession? There are huge debates. And the shape that seems to have emerged is a K-shape recovery, that there are, there are people um, in a certain class with certain education attainment with, in certain jobs uh, who have done quite well and even done better in some ways in, uh, during the, the, the COVID recession. And then you have the lower shape of the K, meaning there are people with less education attainment, often in essential worker positions that have schedules and shifts. And that got disrupted. And uh, they're still falling further behind. And uh, there's a concern um, that the economic recovery was so weak for that lower part of the K coming out of 2009 that uh, it is, is going to be weak and uh, have a, a generational impact uh, going forward. And that has nothing to say about the damage we're doing to kids now that the learning loss, again, today's, today's learning loss, if it's not addressed, translates into lower education attainment later, translates into lower earnings later. And uh, I, I don't think we will fully understand the gravity of the impact that these disruptions have had on kids now for another 10 or 15 years until they, they enter the workforce, but it's gonna be pretty detrimental. So have studies tried to quantify that, how much of a, a learning loss, how, what are the likely consequences economically of the learning loss that kids have suffered over the past year? Yeah, there's a couple of uh, different studies. In fact, what was interesting about this when we, we were looking at it, uh, McKinsey and then uh, Raj Chetty and the folks at Opportunity Insights had both conducted their own sort of a separate analysis looking at um, what would disruption in learning create in terms of learning, earning loss later. And they both came to roughly the same conclusion, which is the average student could lose between 61,000 to 88,000 in lifetime earnings. Uh, it was remarkable that they both came to literally almost the same number. Um, and of course, as we just have seen in so many other facets of COVID and the economic recovery, the costs are significantly higher for Black and Hispanic uh, Americans. So Black students are estimated to earn um, about $2,186 less per year compared to just $1,300 for white students. And so, again, having huge detrimental effects uh, on not just the population in general, but a lot of our most vulnerable children. Well, one of the uh, groups that is so opposed the reopening of schools are the unions. Just today, uh, Randy Weingarten uh, sent out a, a letter to everybody saying uh, three feet apart is not good enough. You got to be six feet apart, which is very, very important because if you have six feet apart rules in the schools, it makes it much more difficult to open up and admit all kids. You're going to have to go to halftime or something like that because, you know, a room is only so big and you've got, you're keeping everybody six feet apart. It's sort of ridiculous anyhow. Kids can't be kept six feet apart. They never have been kept six feet apart. You wouldn't want them to be six feet apart. So, so why, is, why are the unions coming up with every possible excuse that they can dream of to keep the schools from opening up? You know, I, I wish I knew. I, I think uh, they've, they've, their true colors have finally been called out with this most recent CDC guidance that when the CDC revised its guidance from six feet to three feet, um, 
that was the right thing to do. We covered some of this in our report, but the six foot standard has its roots going back to 1941. There is nothing magical about six feet of distance. It's from one study that was done. And again, we've learned a lot during COVID. And one of the things we've learned is that a three feet provides adequate protection, especially if you use other layers of, of mitigation measures like a mask. Masks tend to, to block the majority of uh, the virus as it's, it's dispersed in, in aerosol. And so a little bit of spacing um, helps, but six feet for all the disruptions that you just pointed out uh, in terms of the fewer kids you bring into the classroom, it's just not worth that cost for the marginal benefit that you get for adding another three feet. And the thing is, the CDC has been the laggard in this. Uh, the, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the WHO, uh, the National Academy of Medicine, all these scientific bodies had going as far back as last summer had said three feet is enough. And so what's surprising about this is that um, AFT is, is disagreeing with all these scientific uh, bodies and disagreeing with a pretty robust set of research studies that show that uh, this is possible and safe. And so to your question about What's their end game here? I wish I knew, I, um, but I think it's it's been very frustrating because it does feel like it's a never ending set of moving the goalposts. Uh, and uh, teachers are essential workers, but have been given many more sort of protections than a lot of other essential workers. And, uh, and again, it doesn't mean that every single teacher should come back into the classroom. Some have pre-existing health conditions and should absolutely stay at home. But we, we have learned a lot and we can do a lot to make classrooms very safe for teachers. Well, my guess is that grocery clerks are much more at risk than teachers. They're meeting everybody on the streets, not all of whom are following all the protocols. Um, they have to have very close contact between people working in a grocery store and the customers. Uh, so. Uh, why wouldn't you apply the same rules to teachers as to grocery? I don't know. We, we, we covered in the, the paper a couple of studies that looked at, you know, out of all the essential workers, who's, who's at higher risk and who's at lower risk. And teachers are about middle, middle risk. It's, it's, and again, a lot of that is because of all the other protective measures that go into place. And because there's a lot of other things you can control in the classroom. I, I, I think the way that we, we didn't mention this in the, in the study, but the way a lot of epidemiologists talk about protection is they call it the Swiss cheese model. And, the, and it's a useful metaphor because if you think of every layer as a, a protection, as a piece of Swiss cheese, it can block some of the virus, but every piece of cheese has a hole in it and that allows some of the virus to go through. And so even a vaccine is 90% effective as a 10% hole that some of it can go through. And so it's not one single layer of protection, it's multiple layers of protection, but it turns out masks are insanely helpful at blocking most of the virus. Turns out again, some spacing, and increasing ventilation. These are things that do not have to be very costly. And, and the reason we know that is because we've seen Catholic schools do it uh, at a fraction of the cost with uh, hardly any of the, the federal funding uh, that has been made available to public schools. We've seen it in schools in Europe and we've seen it in schools here in the United States. So again, these measures, it should be good news that we can provide that sort of protection at pretty cost of effective ways. Uh, and yet for some reason, it, it's it, it, the, that science um, is still not good enough for the unions. So why is it that the school districts are just not saying we're opening the schools, anybody who doesn't show up doesn't get paid? Wouldn't that pretty much solve the problem? 
Yeah, they, they tried that in Chicago and uh, they've tried it in a couple couple districts and it's been it's been super contentious. And uh, again, I, I sort of hand it to the superintendents who and the mayors, frankly, who have pushed so hard to do the right thing here, uh, but have just been met and blocked uh, with um, with new new requirements and uh, new standards that don't have any sort of real roots in the science. And so that's been been disappointing. Well, do you think the schools are going to be universally open this coming fall? Are we, do we have this behind us now or is this thing gonna go into another academic year? So it's my hope that we'll have schools uh, mostly opened. Uh, I, I was feeling hopeful until I saw the AFT again, disagree with the CDC and the vast majority of scientific bodies out there. And it just sort of felt like if they're still disagreeing this late, it's so hard to anticipate what their disagreements are gonna be in a couple months. And maybe that ends up disrupting the reopening of schools for the next school year. The only wild card, which I, I think we need to watch are these new variants. And it's because the new variants um, do have a risk, at least one or two of them have the risk of evading some of the, the efficacy of the vaccines. And so you could, could imagine a scenario, it's a worst case scenario, but a scenario where another wave of the virus comes through uh, it's a little bit more it evades the vaccine effectiveness and uh, may end up closing some communities and schools. I also think we have this other sort of challenge right now, which is for the better part of a year, uh, the fear mongering that has sort of taken place here has paralyzed a lot of families. A lot of, a lot of moms and dads just don't know who to believe. They hear from the superintendent that it's safe. They hear from the unions it's not safe. So you see this in a couple of instances where schools are are open, but you have a sizable number of parents that have kept their kids still in remote learning. And uh, the same way that we have vaccine hesitancy, we almost have like a reopening hesitancy. Some people that um, are waiting uh, uh, for something to make them feel a little bit more confident that it's safe to send their kids back. And so that is a population I think we need to listen to and better understand because I can imagine some scenarios where going into the fall, some parents wanna keep their kids back home until there's a vaccine available for the kids. Um, and that what we know is that a vaccine won't be available for younger children until 2022 and for older children probably until the, the late summer, early fall. That's right. If you go by the vaccine rule, then you have, you're, you're going to have another year of closing of the system. Yeah, right. You can't possibly have that rule. I mean, you can have it, but it will be absurdly costly to uh, an entire generation of students. That's right. I think the problem is, is there hasn't been enough talk about the cost of closing, the academic, the learning costs, the emotional costs, the, the, the social relationship costs, even the physical fitness of children. Did you look at any of these dimensions? We did. We, we included a whole section because like at the end of the day, all these are about weighing trade-offs in, in uh, costs and benefits. And so you have to weigh whatever sort of public health benefit having schools close offers with what are those costs. And, the, and so we listed a bunch of studies that again, seem to be growing by the day that are capturing learning loss. You're absolutely right uh, that obesity is going up, depression rates are going up. Um, the number of, of uh, suicides uh, or children at risk of suicide, of being hospitalized because of risk of suicide is going up in a number of cities. Uh, which is concerning. You have students that are missing routine vaccinations, which also has uh, important health implications later. 
uh, and then other sort of well-being measures uh, as well. But all this is sort of accumulating that these are the costs that have to be weighed against whatever benefits there are from closing schools. And it just doesn't seem like uh, that's a difficult decision. When you see these costs mounting and very minimal benefits with keeping schools closed, it feels like that should be a pretty easy uh, decision uh, for, for most superintendents. Unfortunately, it, it still has not been an easy decision for the unions for some reason. Well, thank you, uh, John. This has been a, a, a great conversation and an informative one. And uh, as is your report, which I recommend to our audience uh, for them to take a, a careful look at. It's, it's long, I'll admit, that it's not an easy read. You've got to go through 92 pages, but it's pretty well organized. So you can flip through and look at some of the charts without reading every single <laughs> study that's cited there. But uh, congratulations, John, on your uh, excellent uh, gathering together. Uh, important. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with John Bailey, visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and author of a new report entitled, Is It Safe to Reopen Schools? I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.